Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. What do we know about games and gaming? And specifically, what do we know about games and gaming as it relates to the idea of art, particularly fine art? And there's actually a discussion of whether or not video games could be considered fine art. In his new book, Works of Game on the Aesthetics of Games and Art, John Sharp examines this discussion and considers three communities of practice with respect to video games. And he is our guest on the show today. And this is New Books and Technology. I'm your host, Jasmine McNeely. So the book is Works of Game on the Aesthetics of Game and Art. And the author is John Sharp. But John, so the first thing we like to do on New Books and Technology is to allow the author to just give us some background on themselves and tell us about themselves. So tell us about John Sharp. Sure. Um, So I've been involved in both studying and making things for 30 years at this point. Um, I have three college degrees in art history. Mm-hmm. Um, wrote my dissertation on a 15th century painter named Carlo Crivelli. Um, so I've got a, you know, a longstanding sort of scholarly practice, I suppose, but I also have a equally long design background. Um, you know, going back even into high school, I, um, been a graphic designer and a printmaker and a DJ. Mm-hmm. Um, I've made far more websites than I care to remember. <laughs> um, more recently, a lot of my creative practice revolves around making games. Um, so I'm kind of a, a hybrid practitioner scholar, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. Um, right now, I'm faculty at uh, Parsons School of Design in New York, part of the new school. I, I teach in a program called uh, MFA Design and Technology, primarily, mm-hmm. which is a little bit of a misnomer because we don't just do design, and we have a very broad view of what technology is. Um, you know, for me, the buttons on my shirt are an equally valid technology to the iPhone in my pocket, mm-hmm. and that's kind of the approach we take in the program. Um, mostly, I teach. Um, sort of studio courses. So I'm working with students doing everything from making board games to making uh, video games. Recently, a lot of folks are doing a lot of VR projects around the Oculus Rift and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But also students doing art installations and, you know, apps for tablets and all sorts of things. Um, So yeah, I'm kind of a kind of a hybrid Mm -hmm. doing lots of things. So how does your hybridity <laughs> inform your writing of the book, uh, Works of Game? I mean, it has a lot to do with it. I mean, really, the, the inspiration for the book came from to traveling in circles around, I guess, what we'd call indie game developers. 
Um, so, you know, the kinds of people who are making games kind of on the margins, they're not in the large corporations, um, you know, like uh, Activision or Electronic Arts or that sort of thing. Uh, so anyway, I was traveling in those circles. I helped organize a conference called uh, Indicade, which takes place out in Los Angeles in the fall every year. Mm-hmm. And I know starting about a decade ago, I guess, there was sort of a, a real drive in the game communities to think of games as something more than just commerce, that being more than just media products. And so there's a sort of nod towards art and kind of a, a hope that games might receive the same kind of recognition that painting or film or, you know, even um, classical music, poetry might receive. And I just noticed with my background in art history and kind of traveling in circles of, you know, kind of art with a capital A, but there seemed to be a real disconnect often in, in what uh, these game makers thought it meant for something to be art. Mm-hmm. And on the same, kind of on the flip side of that, um, being around uh, folks in the contemporary art community, there was a real um, sort of misunderstanding of uh, uh, the potential of games as a medium or as a, you know, a creative form. And so the book is really kind of born out of that, of me being in this uh, interesting kind of in-between space where I had perspectives on both art and games that I came to realize were kind of unique. Mm-hmm. And so it led me to start working on the book. So you mentioned um, the idea that some people wanted to um, get games viewed as more than just media products. Mm-hmm. Why is that necessary or why was that necessary? I mean, it's, it's a good question. I mean, that was kind of my first question too. when when I heard people talking about it and I mean, it really kind of boils when people use the term art outside of the sort of small subcultures that are the sort of contemporary art communities, they mean a couple of things. So, you know, one is um, sort of recognition, right? That this is acknowledged as being a worthy thing to be doing. So I think that's part of it. I think another thing that people tend to mean when they say art is they mean something that's well made, right? Like that it's, there's a real attention to the details of the craft of whatever the form might be. And I think some of it was just, uh, you know, if you couldn't, it's it's not a leap to sort of connect the status of, let's say, comics to the status of games, Mm -hmm. particularly back in like the 1950s, right, when comics were probably some of the more interesting popular culture going on, and yet they were often looked down upon, they were considered to be you know, a cause of harm for youth and that sort of thing. And so I think that's part of what was driving people in the games communities. Um, I think another thing, particularly in the independent games communities, is a, a wish to distance themselves from the, I think what some people perceive to be the, for lack of a better term, the crass commercialism of the sort of AAA game industry mm-hmm. where it, you know, the, sometimes it feels like people putting some games out might as well just be, you know, selling razors and razor blades for the amount of attention they're putting into um, the medium. Mm-hmm. 
So is is it is this a, a cultural issue um, as far as getting games considered to be art? I think it is. I think it is. Um, you know, it's a, it's a cultural legitimacy question. I think, and it, it. I think the role of technology in games. You know, like I'm using the word games in a very broad sense. I think when most people think games today, they're thinking much more specifically. They're thinking video games, right? Mm-hmm. So something you're playing on your Xbox or your PlayStation or your tablet, right? Um, and technology, I think, really kind of colors the way people think about creativity. You know, when I talk to artists and curators who are doing art, you know, fine art, but that involves technology, so it would kind of broadly be put under the label, I suppose, of media art, they often talk about some of the same exact issues that the game makers are talking about. That you know, things that are made with computers tend to not be valued as highly as things that are you know made of clay or of paint and canvas. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's part of the issue is that just as a you know here in the United States and you know speaking more broadly to include Europe. Um, Technology just is, it's, you know, it's somehow not viewed as involving as much craft or, or skill or somehow computing is, you know, as much as computing is everywhere in our lives, for a lot of people, it's still just sort of fancy calculators, right? It's still business machines. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people, I don't think, have made that sort of leap to realize that computers afford us all sorts of new creative and artistic opportunity. And I think that's part of what people who um, want games to have a, a better status or, you know, I think it's part of what's on their mind. Mm-hmm. So, so is this like analogous to the introduction of the synthesizer into into music? Sure, yeah, totally. I mean, if you you know you want to want to get scholarly about it, <laughs> Benjamin and uh, the you know the work of art in the age of mechanical reproduction, um, or even going further back, the introduction of the printing press, right, and like like the impact that had on the ability, the facility with which you could disseminate visual works was directly proportional to the, uh, you know, the, the more copies of something existed, the less highly people thought about it. You know, a lot of it ends up boiling down as much as it has to do with the tools with which a work is made. It also has to do with the ease with which it can be duplicated and disseminated. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think the synthesizer is, is a good example, but so is the printing press mm-hmm. right, of something that kind of takes away a little bit from, the aura, as Benjamin called it, around a work of art. Mm-hmm. So you start off the book talking about the importance of, of thinking about the affordances of both art and games. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you could like expand on that for the, for the listeners. Sure. Um, yeah, in the intro to the book, I kind of lay out a, a kind of a theory of how we as uh, communities um sort of perceive we think about the works of art um and it sort of starts out just sort of conceptually what do we think a medium is good for 
right? Mm-hmm. And so I think a lot of people, when they're thinking about games, they think, oh, they're for fun. They're for um, passing the time, right? Or maybe some people might think, oh, they're they're good for educating, right? So, so given that sort of conceptual affordance, you then sort of move down, okay, well, then what, given these expectations of the medium, what are the tools we can use to provide this? So that's sort of the next layer, the kind of the formal affordances. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and again, most people tend, when they, they hear game in their mind, they're putting the word video right in front of that, right? So they're assuming there's a screen and there's some sort of software like a Unity that allows you to create 3D worlds and the interactivity inside of it. Um and then eventually you get down to the sort of experiential affordances. So what is it we think we are going to be experiencing when we're consuming a work in this particular medium, given the things we expect to come from that medium? And so when games people are looking at games, they're thinking about um, you know, what are the activities that someone gets to do inside the game? What are the goals what is the sort of uh, emotional tone of the game? When then somebody from a contemporary art world is looking at games, more often than not, they're thinking about them in two different ways. One, games as a set of technologies that can be used to create art. Or they're thinking about games as a set of kind of cultural values and tropes that can be played with. Um, and so given that, you see different kinds of work coming out of it, right? Like, you know, early in the um, in that first chapter, I, I use the examples of uh, Nintendo's um, Super Mario Brothers, right? Which is, for a lot of people of a certain age, that is kind of one of the first gameplay experiences they probably had. It's about taking this little Mario fellow and helping him come find his, uh, and rescue his princess. And you do this by making him run from left to right and jump on turtles and over barriers and so on. So, you know, for, for many people, when you think of game, that's kind of the model, right? Sure. And then, you know, the next example is, well, what if you're thinking about games as, in expresses form, how does that change things? And so the example I use is uh, Jonathan Blow's game Braid, which in a lot of ways is very similar to Super Mario Brothers, but there's a different intention at play. It, it is a game that you can play. You're still you know, running around from left to right and jumping over things. There's still princess figure there that you're trying to rescue but instead of just being about entertainment the game's actually trying to use the form of games to explore ideas like loss and forgiveness and reconsidering your actions and what might you do if given the opportunity to do so and john does this in in his game by getting rid of the idea of death and lives right like super mario brothers you'll like you know, if you get run out hit one of the turtles or uh something right you'll you'll die sure so you've got to start over but in braid that doesn't happen you've got the ability to rewind time and so just by making this one small addition and then bringing a different set of intentions to the to 
the medium of games, he's able to pull something else out of it. And then the third example I give in the introduction is uh, Mafane Ashmore's uh, Mario Battles Battle Number One. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of, she takes one of the early Super Mario games and she hacks it so that basically everything is gone in the game except Mario in the ground. And so all you can do is walk. Right. And so she's taking the tools and she's taking the sort of cultural tropes of games and she's doing it to a completely different end. And so it becomes this sort of, um, sort of existential meditation, if you will. Mm-hmm. And so all three of these examples are very similar on the surface, but when you look at them from the point of view of what the creators of, of the specific works, how they viewed the medium of games, what intentions they brought to that and the experience they would provide people, you see very different outcomes and very different play experiences. Right. Now, a couple of things you you mentioned. Um, one was about the various kinds of, I guess, I want to call them communities, mm-hmm. and how those communities view either games or art, or art in games. And um, I was wondering about the, por- the importance of these communities and how that shapes whether... Um, a game is considered art or a game is used to create art, if you will. Yeah. I mean, I think community has a huge bearing on these things and, and who the people are inside these communities, you know, um, you know, like the example of, um, super Mario brothers, right. That's coming out of a community practice. That's essentially, inside a corporation, right? And so the intention of keeping things fun and light were very much at play there, and that those are values that were shared by um, Miyamoto, the, you know, the, the designer of that game, and the people with whom he was working. Um, he stepped down to like Jonathan Blow's raid, he, there's certain, the community he's coming from is one of people working as game developers, but people coming more from the computer science and the programming side, let's say, and, and perhaps less of, um, experience or involvement in communities around fine art and contemporary art and the values that played there. And so as much as John and the, people that worked with him on Braid changed their intentions, there's still certain values that they didn't question, like, why should it be a man trying to rescue a woman? Mm-hmm. Right? Like, that wasn't something that there were, there was real criticality brought to the issue, right? Um, that wasn't necessarily a set of values of, of thinking about gender dynamics and gender roles. It wasn't something that within his community of practice that was something people were thinking about. And so he left that intact. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, for me, community is huge. I mean, and it's one of the things that I feel like that's really driving a lot of the changes that are happening in games like right now. It's kind of a, an amazing time in independent games 
with uh, the rise of um, what I guess a shorthand would be the queer games movement. Mm-hmm. So artists like Anna Anthropy and Merrick Copus and Porpentine and Robert Yang, um, which is something that started probably close to five years ago now, I guess, at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, so these are people who are coming from outside the sort of traditional communities. They're, you know, they're not coming out of the AAA big studio world and they're not even necessarily coming out of um, what's more broadly seen as the independent games community. Um, These are folks who are sort of making a community for themselves, right. And starting to get games out there and that's letting more people see themselves as, Hey, you know, maybe I too could make a game. Um, and so we're just seeing kind of a snowball effect happening where this community is getting larger and larger. And it's now, I think, as a result of that, we're seeing what's loosely being referred to as the alt games movement, mm-hmm. which is a broader group. And so it's involving some of the LGBTQ community. But we're also starting to see more um, people of color coming in mm-hmm. people from a broader set of backgrounds and socioeconomic statuses starting to realize that games can be for them too, not just as a consumer, but as a, a medium of expression. Mm-hmm. And this is all coming out of a sort of slow evolution of these subcultures um, coming together and starting to take, take form. Um, you know, and this being the age of the internet, that's largely happening over Twitter and and Facebook and through itch.io and places like that. Now, within these communities, the, the developers, the game developers, the game creators have different intentions that you also mentioned. Um, but at the same time, you mentioned in the book that there's a certain level of literacy, uh, necessary to actually get the artist's game. So, for example, the Ashmore uh, mm-hmm. Mario trilogy, if you don't get it, you'd perhaps be frustrated. So I was wondering if you could talk about the, the literacy necessary to really understand the artist's intentions. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a huge part of it, right? Like the, um, I talk about um, Cory Archangel Super Mario Clouds mm-hmm. in, in the book, and it's a it's another work that's riffing on um, Super Mario Brothers. You know, I, I promise not all our games are just about Mario. There's other <laughs> subjects, but it happens to be kind of an easy because so many people are familiar with Mario and his game universe. It's a, an easy place to talk. But mm-hmm. so Super Mario Clouds. He took a cartridge of the game and he hacked it so that all the graphics are gone except for the sky and the clouds. Mm-hmm. He leaves all the gameplay intact, right? So for somebody who has this like deep, deep, deep literacy of that particular game, they could still play it even though they can't see any of the graphics, right? Because they're simply working off of muscle memory. Mm-hmm. But for somebody who has less of a game literacy, but they're more familiar with the history of art, they might look at this piece and see a low-resolution pixel graphic landscape scene, mm-hmm. right? And so the, 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 the literacies we all have lead us to see and value different things in the works. So for what one person might be a beautiful... Um, 
minimalist landscape for another is a very funny joke that oh look they've 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 uh, erased everything else about the game and for others is still a, a deeply playable game I, I feel like these literacies come in large part from our communities mm-hmm. you know the, the, who do we play with who do we work with who do we talk with about these things who is it who helps us understand who makes us aware of of the different uh, cultural artifacts that are out there. Um, so those literacies come through our, you know, kind of our own experiences of, of playing and looking and seeing and hearing, mm-hmm. but they also come from the conversations we have and the values that our communities help us um, sort of learn and internalize. Mm-hmm. Now you categorize in the book, you categorize, um, the games and art in three different ways. You say game art, art games, and artists games. Um, I was wondering if you could explain those for just for the audience, like a brief explanation sure. of those. Sure. Yeah, that's a, it's <laughs> it's kind of noodly terminology, isn't it? So, so but we'll start with uh, game art, which is um, probably the easiest way to define that is works made by artists from games. So, you know, let's say, um, let's take Marcel Duchamp and his famous work fountain, right? Which is basically a urinal. So in that case, he's an artist who made art out of, um, out of, uh, plumbing equipment, right? Or Jackson Pollock, in his famous uh, abstract expressionist drip paintings, he's an artist who made paintings out of house paint, right? So game art is kind of analogous to that. It's artists making their works out of the sort of materials and ideas of games. And more often than not, those are video games. So the Super Mario Clouds I was talking about before, that's a perfect example of that. Um, so art games is the next category, and those are generally works made by game makers, so they're games, but with an artistic intention. Um, so like, like the game Braid that I was talking about is a perfect example of that, or another example is um, a game by Brenda Romero called Train, which is a board game that is exploring ideas of um, complicity in atrocious um, historical moments, in the case of Train, that being the Holocaust. And the player's role in the game is to basically be a train conductor, putting people onto the boxcars to take them to concentration camps. Mm. So it's using the medium of games to explore the kinds of ideas that generally we would associate with art, right? Like you might compare that to something like uh, Picasso's Guernica, right? Mm-hmm. As a, an artist using the medium of painting to explore human atrocity. Um, so that's art games. Mm-hmm. And then the final category, artists games are where I feel like we're seeing more of a synthesis of the values of contemporary art 
and people who have a really fine-tuned sensibility about game making. Um, a great example of that that I, I talk about in the book is the work of Mary Flanagan, who is a, a professor up at Dartmouth. Mm-hmm. But she's been making and studying and writing about games for come on 20 years at this point and so she has a deep deep understanding of the medium of games but she is also a fine artist right and so her work belies the values of both of those communities and we see them coming together in a synthetic way that people inside the art world can look at mary's work and see themselves in it but at the same time people in the games community can look at her work and see themselves in it. Um, probably like one of my favorite examples of hers I talk about in the book is Giant Joystick. And the name is extremely descriptive. She took the you know the little five and a half inch tall joysticks we probably all remember from our Atari VCS, and she turned it into a ten foot tall sculpture. Mm-hmm. So you know, like if you could like shoot the expand array at one and it suddenly becomes 10 feet tall and then she hooks that up to an old atari vcs and lets you play like asteroids or you know one of those games on it Mm -hmm. and so just by playing around with scale like that she brings so much into question about what it means to play a video game in particular a single player game because with a 10 foot tall joystick unless you're yourself eight feet tall, it's a little bit difficult to both move the joystick and hit the button at the same time. So then you've got to collaborate with somebody. All right. So I'll, I'll grab the joystick. Jasmine, you hit the button and let's see if we can play this game together. Right. (laughs) And and so it's, it's still, it's a, you know, you still can play. She still understands all of the nuances of designing player actions and all of that. But she's bringing the criticality that we would more often expect to see with fine art. Mm-hmm. Now, towards the end of the book, you say art and games are not anything unto themselves. I was wondering, what, what did you mean by that? Um, well, I think they both tend to be very mushy, kind of vague and gray categories in culture. You know, they're not, you know, game and not video game. It has a deeply important role in our lives, as do the arts, but they don't take any one single form. You know, it's not like film, right? Like we have a very clear understanding of the medium of film and and what that means and, you know, how we experience it and where we experience it. The games and art are much broader you know, with, with art Again, since Duchamp and his pals back at the turn of the uh, 20th century, um, suddenly just the idea of art being pretty pictures and sculptures that you go visit in a museum no longer really made that much sense. And over the, come on, hundred years since um, Duchamp and his friends were working, the whole concept of art has really grown and fragmented and become something that's much harder for us to define culturally. Mm-hmm. And I feel like games are quite similar, um, particularly since you know 1972 and Pong. 
games have simultaneously become much more visible in our discourse, but they've also become less clear and distinct for us, I think, and kind of what function they serve in our lives. And so we kind of all are making it up as we go, I think, right? And that's, again, where community comes into play, um, helping us sort of come to understand within our small groups what do these things mean to us, um, you know, what what being a work of art means to someone in, let's say, um, I don't know, Athens, Georgia, where I went to college, means something quite different than it does to someone in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, New York, right? Um, and the same kind of goes for for games. So, you know, when when I when I talk about these ideas being kind of um, these two categories of art and games being kind of open ended, um, to me that's that's a, a positive and not a negative. Right? It's an opportunity. It's kind of an exciting time to to be able to help shape what these things mean and to breathe new life into them that they may not have had to help people see new things in them and new potentials um, that they may not have imagined. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that we instituted here on new books and technology is the elevator pitch. Mm. So <laughs> pretend if you will, <laughs> that someone just tuned in and they just got to this part of the interview and you want to give them the brief overview of what the book is and why they should, you know, either buy it or, or go to the library and check it out. Um, what would you say? I'm looking at the book right now to try to cheat. <laughs> <laughs> See, apparently I don't ever say anything very concise. I mean, looking at the uh, inside flap of it, and it still takes me two paragraphs. <laughs> Describe it there. Um, but I guess if I were going to try to, um, let's say we're going to be on a uh, five-floor elevator ride, so sure. I'll try to make it fit in, into that. Um, I, I think if you have an interest in thinking about games in a broader sense, then Works of Game is for you, because it 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 kind of cracks open the ideas of what games can mean for different people. Mm-hmm. You approach them from different points of view, and and how uh, using art as a sort of focal point can can help us look about look at and think about um, what games currently mean to us and what games can mean to us mm-hmm. future. Sounds good to me. <laughs> <laughs> so so John, what's next for you? Um, I'm currently working with a, uh, another academic named David Thomas on a book called Fun Taste and Games, which is laying out a kind of an aesthetics of fun. Um, and by that, I mean, if you think of visual art, kind of, when we think of aesthetics, the first word that comes to mind is beauty, right? If you go back to Kant. Mm-hmm. Um, and sort of the birth of sort of Western aesthetics, this idea of beauty as being the kind of criteria around which we think about works of art. You know, in the 
several hundred years since Comte was writing. Of course, things have changed a lot, right? And now beauty has become something that we're suspicious of often, right? Or it is not enough unto itself and that things are much broader than that. But still, we can't really escape beauty as part of the conversation. And in the the book, David and I are arguing that fun has kind of a a similar role Mm -hmm. in with games and in aesthetics of games. So that book will be coming out hopefully in the fall. Um, And then I'm a partner in a small company called local number 12. Mm -hmm. And we just recently released a card game called the metagame, which is if you've ever played apples to apples or cards against humanity, then you're familiar with that sort of parlor game genre. Um, But the metagame has two different kinds of cards, culture cards that represent things from film and TV and fashion and design. Um, and of course, games. Uh, so, like, there's an Oprah card, for example. And there's a um, mullet card for the unfortunate hairstyle. And uh, there's a New York subway card. And then there's another deck of cards called opinion cards. So they pose questions like, which feels more like first love? Or um, which is the one that people love to hate? And we've designed a suite of six different games that you can play in combination with these cards. So it's a, it's a fun game for people who love to sit and talk about popular culture. (laughs) That sounds good. Yeah. Well, anyway, so the book is works of game on the aesthetics of games and art. And the author is John Sharp, who was gracious enough to come on the uh, new books and technology podcast today. And we thank you for that. Thank you for having me. It's been great. No problem. This has been New Books and Technology. Uh, Have a great week.